Welcome to the program, Optimizing Outcomes by Assessing the Evidence, Placental Base Allographs. This program is supported by an educational grant from MyMedics and provided by North American Center for Continued Med Medical Education, LLC, and HMP Company. Uh, my name is Dennis Orgel. I'm a plastic surgeon at Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I'm the medical director of our wound care clinic here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, I specialize in reconstructive surgeries and taking care of uh, complicated wounds. And I've also done quite a bit of uh, work with industry over the years in trying to uh, get new ideas translated into products and uh, out to the market. As you know, uh, we have many uh, sick patients that we take care of and the needs that they have are uh, big motivators for us to get uh, better procedures and, and products to them to help uh, with their difficult wounds. So uh, the disclosures, I'm a consultant for uh, MTF Perry and a consultant and uh, get research funding for Integra Life Sciences. And just to mention that um, brand names are included in this presentation for participant clarification purposes only, and no product promotion should be inferred from, from this. So uh, let's go ahead and get going. Um, we have two learning objectives over the next uh, hour. We will uh, first examine the evidence-based medicine and wound care and the hierarchy of evidence, and then we'll implement treatment strategies based on clinical evidence supporting the application of placental-based allographs in chronic wound care. So let's first talk a little bit about levels of evidence. Many of you are aware that there are drugs approved by the Food and Drug Administration uh, based on pretty good evidence that later found out to actually do harm to patients or to be ineffective. And in fact, if you go look at various lists, there are 35 uh, drugs that are listed out there that have been actually banned from the market by the FDA over, over the years, things like diethyl silvestrol, uh, which causes uh, birth defects. And so uh, in our enthusiasm to help our patients, we would obviously not want to harm them. That's sort of uh, the first rule that physicians have is to try and do no harm. And we base a lot of our decisions on the medical literature. The first thing to realize is that we need to have some humility in the medical literature and that it can be incorrect. And in order to do this, a variety of people have come across this concept of levels of evidence, meaning that the higher the level of evidence, the higher the chance that the um, study is actually correct and that we can rely on this. And by doing this, our hope is that we can reduce errors, reduce application of um, various procedures, products, and drugs to our patients, and also that we can use things for our patients that will actually be helpful to them. Now, because of the bias in things like case reports, you can do one case and get a great result or, or do one case and get a, a horrible result, but it may be related to things other than the intervention that you're studying. 
So people have found over the years that the most reliable papers are prospective. In other words, you decide in advance what you're going to test. Double-blinded, so you compare what you're going to test against a well-established control. And they're done in a clinical trial standard where you decide in advance what you're going to do uh, and then wait until the end of the study to analyze the data. So this is the highest level of evidence. We'll go through some of the other um, levels of evidence that are lower. Uh, the lowest level of evidence would be expert opinion. So a surgeon like me would come in and say, you know what, you should use this drug because I've had great experience in my practice. Uh, it turns out that, that those type of statements, although they may be true, uh, there's a high chance that they may not be true because they don't undergo the scrutiny of these randomized controlled clinical trials. The double-blinded portion is important and sometimes difficult to do, uh, particularly in wound care studies where uh, very often it's quite obvious what we are putting on the patient. But even the best well-constructed randomized controlled clinical trials do have sources of bias. And I think our job is both uh, clinicians and as investigators is trying to minimize these biases and acknowledge the biases when they exist. So uh, for plastic surgery, as with many specialties, these pyramids, which are levels of evidence, have been established. And here is the American Society of Plastic Surgery ratings of levels of evidence and grading recommendations. And this is for uh, therapeutic studies. So I'm going to just spend a minute going through these because I think this is uh, very important. And this was published a number of years ago. Uh, and the senior author is Rod Rurick, who is the uh, current editor of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and has been a big proponent of trying to get as many high-level of evidence studies published as possible. So as I mentioned, uh, the highest level, which would be level one evidence, would be high-quality, multi-centered, or single-center randomized controlled trial with adequate power. And we'll talk about power in a minute, but that means that you have enough subjects to uh, show a difference or a systematic review of these studies. So uh, actually, in many areas of medicine, putting together several randomized clinical trials, looking at one thing and combining these in what's called a systematic review uh, provides the highest level of evidence. A review study per se uh, does not necessarily make it a higher level of evidence unless the underlying concepts included in the review study are of high level. Level two would be lesser quality randomized controlled trials, prospective cohorts or comparative studies or systemic reviews of these lesser quality studies. And in wound care and in surgery, we have a lot of these studies because it turns out that the uh, level one evidence studies are very complicated to do. They're very expensive. And uh, very often we want to get results out uh, before these are either possible or uh, they, they can't be done at all. Three are very commonly seen in surgery. These would be retrospective cohort studies or comparative studies, case control studies, or systematic reviews of these studies. So this would be like um, 
for example, in surgery, if you did 100 appendectomies, you would write up your results and say, I did 100 appendectomies. Uh, I controlled that with 100 appendectomies that were done at a, in a different institution, and these are the complications we obtained versus the complications at the other institution. So these would be sort of in the middle of the level of evidence pyramid, uh, or three. Case four, uh, or level of evidence four, would be case series with pre or post tests, or only post tests. And these are uh, quite common and and are actually valuable because um, in medicine we have a lot of unique cases that we see. Uh, for example, in plastic surgery, we see a lot of uh, a lot of cases throughout our specialty of, of uh, ear replantation. Someone has an ear cut off and uh, has this replanted, but for an individual surgeon, they might only see this case uh, once in their in their career. So writing up these individual case studies and then sometimes aggregating these can uh, be very useful. But again, it's a fairly low level of evidence. And as I mentioned before, the fifth level of evidence is expert opinion uh, developed via consensus process. Uh, these can be case reports, clinical examples, or evidence based on physiology, bench research, or first principles. Again, uh, this is important when new devices or uh, biologics are introduced into the medical field. Someone has to start, and uh, expert opinion is a good way to get going. So in, in summary, these are these five levels of evidence that we've defined in plastic surgery, um, which are similar in many other fields, going from, uh, from these randomized controlled clinical trials on the top to expert opinion on the bottom. And people have likened these to pyramids, where you'll have a lot of expert opinion on the on the bottom with case reports, and then these support uh, these larger retrospective studies, and then um, the randomized control clinical trials on the top. And the idea is that um, the whole evidence should support uh, the conclusion of of what you're doing. Now, the level of evidence are slightly different for diagnostic procedures, therapeutic procedures, and uh, looking at procedures at risk. One of the things that's important in, in the United States is the Food and Drug Administration, uh, which regulates many of the things we do in medicine. In uh, Europe, it's called the CE mark, but the FDA within medical, within the medical field regulates drugs, devices, biologics, and uh, what we'll talk about today is, would be human tissues, uh, which are in this 21 CFR regulation. It turns out that drugs are very often the easiest thing to do a study on. For example, an antihypertensive drug, uh, you can give that easily to 100 patients and follow their blood pressure, or a, a drug for diabetes, you can follow people's uh, blood glucose, and uh, it's very, fairly easy to both do these and to have a placebo um, to look at the effect of the, of the drug. But it, as a result, um, oftentimes drugs have a small effect. So they might, uh, for example, make your glucose, 20 glucose control 20% better, but in order to show that, you need a very large study. So uh, it turns out of the things on this list, the 
development costs for drugs are probably um, the highest of any of these items on the list. And the reason for that is the amount of preclinical work and, and also the expense of the clinical trials that are involved to get these to market. Uh, medical devices uh, come next, and they come in different uh, types, class one, two, and three. Class one uh, having very low risk, and class three uh, being more invasive devices, which require more scrutiny by the Food and Drug Administration. Biologics would be uh, macromolecules or uh, things that are that are manu manufactured and uh, require a different regulatory pathway by the uh, Food and Drug Administration. Now, there are very often uh, therapies that have different components of these, and uh, the FDA will decide or sometimes collaborate between different divisions in the FDA as how to regulate these. And then we get down to human tissues, which turns out they don't have much regulation because the FDA has decided that if you use these in a uh, comparable fashion, for example, if you use human skin to replace human skin, that that is um, not highly regulated now. And the only thing that's regulated is the process of getting the material. So the FDA wants to make sure that the manufacturers can get a safe material to the consumer, uh, which would be the, the surgeon eventually would be put on the patient so that this material would be safe, would be processed, would not transmit disease. So these are some of the considerations that the FDA does. And the reason why I'm focusing on FDA regulation here is because clinical studies are expensive to do, and when uh, companies want to do a clinical study, they would like to satisfy many of the things that the FDA might be looking for. So an understanding of the FDA regulation for the particular product uh, can be very important. Now, uh, how are these how are these uh, human tissues different? There needs to be careful donor screening, and this has actually improved tremendously over the last few years, where the donor screening can be tested for the usual suspects uh, for infectious agents, including uh, things like hepatitis and AIDS and there are uh, reliable testing for these uh, today. The processing is very important that that be done to preserve the biological effects of the tissue that you're using. And today we'll talk about products that are dehydrated, that are cryopreserved, that can be lyophilized, and some of these can be cross-linked. Uh, cross-linking is a process which uh, binds proteins together and can stabilize um, can, can stabilize these constructs, but can sometimes also reduce their biological effect. The packaging needs to be properly performed. It needs to be pop, properly labeled, and it needs to be able to be properly tracked. So if a clinician does note a, a problem, if problems are noted in similar lots that the FDA then has a capacity to go back to a company and trace trace this back and try and find out if there's a problem that could be that could be uh, solved beyond the FDA reimbursement is very important for patients providers and uh, the companies that manufacture this and there are additional requirements and studies that will need to be 
done to ensure reimbursement. Because in the U.S. we have a complex uh, medical system where we have both federal and private payers, uh, the reimbursement landscape is complex to say the least, and uh, most companies that make these products have experts that can navigate the complexity of the reimbursement. And then finally, uh, there needs to be data supporting usage. And as I mentioned, this is sort of an evolving field when a product first comes out and approved. A lot of these human tissues don't require that much initial clinical data. And over time, as expert reports come in and case studies and then retrospective studies, eventually randomized control studies can be used to support both the regulatory and the reimbursement needs for these products. Now, um, power analysis, when we design a randomized clinical study, we would want that study to correctly predict if the product works or not. And because uh, there's some randomness involved in these studies, we do what's called a power analysis, and that would predict how many patients that you would need to do to, to show an effect and commonly, 80% is what is chosen. So you want to do a study that 80% of the time is going to, if you have a positive study, going to going to show up in, in the study. So the power analysis really depends on the preliminary data. For example, if you have a product that heals wounds 100% of the time in one week versus a product that never heals a wound in 10 weeks, you're not going to need very many patients to do it. But many products uh, have a 10 or 20 or 30% difference compared to a control. And for those, uh, more patients will be needed. Now, a false positive would be a study that shows a difference when there really wasn't one. And a false negative would be the converse, a study that does not show a difference when there is a difference. So in general, larger studies will be more apt to be accurate than smaller studies. And an easy way to think about this would be uh, flipping a coin. If you flip a coin, there's a, po a very small possibility if you flip it 10 times in a row that you always get heads. But more likely, uh, you're going to get either five heads and five tails or four heads and six tails. Um, but, there, but when you get to nine and one, that's more likely than 10 and zero. And so... Those issues are worked through in the power analysis, and that can give us some confidence when designing the, the study to minimize the amount of false negative or false positive studies that are performed. Randomized clinical trials. There are several things that we've learned over the years. The, the first is that these trials should all be registered. So if you're thinking about doing a clinical trial, you should register the trial and let people know what you're going to be doing and do that in advance. The second thing is it's really incumbent on people to publish regardless of the result of the trial. Negative clinical trials are very useful to both patients and, and clinicians and companies for that matter because if we know that something doesn't work or the trial is negative, that's a very good information to have published and in the literature. Now, the psychology that patients have uh, has a huge motivation on how they'll heal their wounds, and that gets to the issue of blinding. 
people are very desirous of having a positive outcome and people want to help the researchers and the clinicians uh, get good results. And so blinding is a way to minimize the effect of this bias. And the patient can be blinded, the person applying the treatment can be blinded, and the family members could be blinded. Now, one of the issues that comes up in wound care studies, particularly when we're using these products, is it's really difficult to blind the studies. And most of these studies are not blinded, but that um, sometimes you can't really easily do it, but it, it, is a, it is a deficiency of these studies. And then power analysis, again, how many patients you need to show a difference. There are also some things that are published on the on the web that can be very useful when you go to publish your studies. Uh, the first is a consort criteria. Uh, this is a checklist and the other is grade, which is a way of trying to assess how confident are you in the results of your trial that it's actually correct. Now here's the clinicaltrials.gov uh, site and you can go into this and actually look for a lot of clinical trials, and you can see here that they have over 33,000 clinical trials registered with about half in the U.S. and about half outside the U.S., and you can go in there and, and search for clinical trials that are going on now, and before you do a clinical trial, it would be good to search to make sure somebody else is not doing exactly the same thing, or if they are, uh, maybe it would be good to learn from from what they've done. So uh, registration is important, and in fact, for most institutional review boards or IRBs, this is this is really um, a requirement of the IRB that the study be registered prior to starting off. Now, even these randomized cl clinical trials can have uh, problems. So if you do a clinical trial and it shows a positive result, in other words, your intervention works, how do you translate that into a patient who walks into your office? And one thing uh, that happens with clinical trials is what are called inclusion and exclusion criteria. Inclusion criteria would be who do you include in the study? Exclusion would, would be who don't you want in your study? So for wound patients, for example, we don't want to include patients in our study that no matter what you do, they'll heal their wound. Similarly, we don't want to include patients that won't heal their wound no matter what you do. We'd like to have patients that are sort of in the middle with an intervention they would heal, but without an intervention they might not. So similarly, we wouldn't want to include someone, for example, who's on renal dialysis if we're doing a wound care study because we know that being on dialysis will inhibit our wound healing, or someone who's has very high blood glucoses. So for many of these studies, they look at hemoglobin A1Cs and uh, make sure that they're under a certain level. The second issue is selection bias. It turns out that patients, there's a group of patients that are happy to enroll in studies and other patients that don't like to be involved in studies. And uh, that can bias your study sometimes because you don't get a um, correct cross-section of the studies. We talked about this before. The inability to blind, particularly in wound care studies, is challenging. Uh, 
And then in the real world, patients drop out of the studies. Wound patients are sick. Some of them will die, and they usually die for some reason unrelated to their wound. But um, they, they can die or they can move or they can just get tired and not show up or go to a different provider. The other thing is that people tend to overinterpret randomized clinical trials. Uh, they're really designed to show one primary endpoint. And uh, the one primary endpoint needs to be designated in advance. Commonly, these, sh these would show um, total healing at either six or 12 weeks. There are a number of secondary endpoints, which will give some ideas that could be used for future clinical studies. But um, the study is really designed to show whether one primary endpoint has been met or not. The inclusion-exclusion criteria, it's very important to get these right because if you include too many people, uh, it will be, the study will be dirtied by it's not a homogeneous group and you're subject, subjecting the study to chance of having patients that may have disease states that have nothing to do with their wound. There can be confounding variables uh, among patients for example, if you compare two groups, you might have one group where you have 80% of the patients smoke versus 20% that don't smoke. That would obviously confound your study. Uh, and then the need to enroll patients uh, can, can oftentimes be challenging to get enough people that fit within your inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, to, to fill your trial. And so oftentimes, these need to be done over multiple centers because one center is not seeing enough of this specific type of patient to do an adequate trial. Now, let me just go over the consort criteria, and there's about three, page, three or four pages of these. Um, but when I submit a randomized clinical trial to the literature, I will submit the trial, and then I will have this, uh, there's a checklist that they have in the back where you actually put the page in the manuscript where you include this. So for example, uh, the title in the abstract, the title should be concise and the word randomized should be used. The abstract should be structured to include trial design, methods, main results, and conclusions. So this is what people expect. And as you go through and see clinical trials, many of them don't even get the title right. Um, but it's very important that we write these in a way so that readers that expect this can easily find it. The introduction should be a brief review of the literature, the rationale for the trial, the objective for the hypothesis, all which needs to be reported in a clear and objective ma manner. And the method should be carefully reported as trial design, eligible criteria for participants, with an explanation of the rationale for such criteria how and where data were collected through description of intervention, which allows results to be reproduced, description of the sample size calculation, changes that occur during the clinical trial with clear reasons to make the changes. Ideally, you wouldn't uh, change anything in the clinical trial, but obviously if there are adverse reactions, sometimes this needs to be done. A very thorough description of the methods used for allocation into trial groups. It's really easy to uh, mess up the randomization, and this needs to be clearly delineated. 
how the trial is evaluated. Are the evaluators blinded? And uh, how's this, how are the statistics uh, being done? Are they being done in a reliable fashion? The grade criteria uh, is the degree of confidence of the estimate. And uh, they have four grades, the high. We are very confident that the true effect lies close to the estimate of the effect. For these, you usually need very large studies. Typically for wound uh, patients, you would need 100 patients in each arm of the study. Moderate, we are moderately confident in the effect estimate. The true effect is likely to be close to the estimate of the effect. But there is possibility that it is substantially different and then low the confidence level is limited. The true effect may be substantially different and very low. Uh, we don't have much confidence in the in the study, and it could easily be different. So, consort and grade are two of the things that I tend to use when I evaluate clinical trials to see did they, with the consort did they do anything right, and then based on the size of the trial and how was it done, how confident am I in their conclusions? So the other thing that uh, you'll see with many products is papers that are based on mechanism of action. And I think that these are important as a foundation, but at the end of the day, um, the highest level of evidence is obviously the randomized control trials. But it's very nice when the mechanistic studies uh, match up with the uh, randomized clinical trials so that we can tell a coherent story about how these products works. So here's one in the Journal of Biomedical Materials Research by uh, Bullard et al. Evaluation of dehydrated human umbilical cord biologic properties for wound heal care and soft tissue healing. Again, their conclusions were that findings established that dehydrated human umbilical cord possesses biological properties that stimulate cellular responses important for soft tissue healing. So again, this is confirmatory evidence that these uh, that these tissues have biological properties, but it doesn't actually prove that it works in patients. Here's another one from the International Wound Journal, biological properties of dehydrated human amnion chorion composite graph implications for chronic wound healing. This one, uh, Jeff Gertner was the senior author for this one, uh, the results established that dehydrated human amnion chorion allografts are biologically active and contain factors that are important in regulating wound healing and tissue regeneration. Another one really showing the rich biological properties of these materials. Um, these are important studies but are not high on the level of, of evidence. Uh, and then the final one is from the Annals of Translational Medicine, an update and review of cell-based wound dressings and their integration to clinical practice. Alex Wong was the uh, senior author on this. Their conclusion, cell-based biological dressings have shown efficacy in a broad range of scenarios, and studies examining their efficacy have improved our understanding of pathophysiology of chronic wounds. So this, again, looks at both the biological basis of these and some clinical studies, uh, but the reader would need to go through and assess each of the clinical studies that they they um, review and see how high they are on the level of evidence. 
pyramids to make their own conclusion about how reliable these studies are. So our second objective tonight is to implement treatment strategy based on clinical evidence supporting the application of placental-based allografts in chronic wound care. And again, for us as clinicians, we, we need to balance the safety, the efficacy, and the cost of these products against the potential for patient benefits. And also, there are many other things that we could do for the wound. So we have to decide, you know, are these products the best or do we want to use a different treatment? Do we want to do a skin graft? Do we want to put on a vac? Do we want to um, put on some sort of antimicrobial dressing? So we have all these tools in wound care, and we, ha we always are doing this balance between the two. But for the rest of this, we'll um, focus a lot on these placental-derived products. And again, if you look at the placenta, uh, here's a picture of it with the umbilical cord connected to it. And there are a variety of products that people are getting out of these today, including placental extracts and cord blood serum. There are cord uh, blood cells that from the placenta called uh, mesenchymal stem cells, MSCs. And then um, important to wound care are these amniotic and chorionic membranes that can be processed and have been um, shown to be effective in, in certain chronic wounds. And placental tissue fragments have also been used. So this should be familiar to most people on the call. Those of us that are clinicians, we just see this growing number of uh, patients with wounds. There are 6.5 million patients uh, with wounds in the U.S., and we spend $50 billion on chronic wounds in the U.S., and, and this breaks out into uh, $15 billion for diabetic foot ulcers, $18 billion for venous stasis ulcers, and $13 billion for pressure injuries, so reasonably evenly divided. And then in addition to chronic wounds, we have acute wounds, and Part of the acute wounds is we do 100 million surgeries annually in the U.S., and if we only have a wound complication of 2%, uh, that would mean that we have 2 million wound complications per year in the, in the U.S. So wounds are a big problem, and we all see this in our practice. We have a growing population. Our population has increased rates of diabetes and obesity, um, and all these things contribute to more wounds that we see. Now, in terms of product development, this is uh, this is complicated, and it turns out it's very challenging to go from an idea to a product that's on the shelf that's paid for. And so I'll just spend a second going through this. Uh, we have an idea, and the first thing we need to do is to get a prototype. This is oftentimes uh, tested in preclinical models, and often some basic testing will be done to determine the biological activities. But at some point, it needs to be uh, placed into clinical studies. For these uh, human-derived tissues, um, there's not too much regulation that's required to get in those. They just need to be processed and, and uh, approved by the FDA. Uh, for other products, um, an investigational device exemption from the FDA needs to be obtained in a clinical trial done before these can obtain regulatory approval. So once uh, we have some clinical evidence, uh, regulatory approval can be gained. And then finally, um, there are many products out there on the market today that are regulated 
statutorily approved but are not reimbursed by insurance companies. So that oftentimes takes additional clinical trials. And for reimbursement, it not only has to work, but compared to other alternatives, it needs to work at a similar or a lower cost. So these are some of the challenges that uh, are faced when going from an idea to a product. So these placental-based allografts uh, have really grown significantly in, in the last uh, few years, and you can see all the lists for them. But probably the largest list today is wounds, but they, they've been used uh, throughout the body in a, a variety of, imp, of uh, implications, including corneal abrasions, uh, where, where these amniotic membranes actually work quite well, and they've that are being tried in a lot of things now, uh, for example, fibrosis prevention. So it's actually a quite exciting area. So it may have been a while since you've thought about the placenta, but um, this is a really interesting organ in the body. It exchanges oxygen and nutrients between the mother and the fetus. It provides an immunological barrier, and it has a great healing capacity and it comes out after delivery and is usually uh, thrown away. So if we can find out a way to uh, utilize this, it could be potentially uh, very useful. And then here's just some of the anatomy. You can see the fetus inside the uterus uh, with the placenta and then the various layers. Uh, the amnion is closer to the fetus, chorion's closer to the, um, to the mother. And then, obviously, the blood exchange occurs uh, throughout the placenta, and um, it's fascinating that the mother and fetus are immunologically different and that um, rejection doesn't occur. And, and so that has to do with some of the fascinating biology of the, of the placenta. Uh, needless to say, the uh, placenta has been used for a long time. Uh, there are there are references in the literature dating back to the late 1500s, but it really started uh, being used in, in the world in uh, the early 1900s, about 100 years ago, and uh, was used for skin grafting and also uh, began being used in, in burn patients and was quite effective for the use of, of uh, burns. And then for a long time uh, was not really used too much until these uh, new constructs have come to life. So why do we stop using placental-derived uh, materials? Uh, the first was, as we began to learn about things like blood transfusion, there became a concern for disease transmission. There's a supply chain issue, getting these from the labor and delivery ward to, to the clinic where you need them or to the operating room. and Finally, there's been a lot of innovation and a lot of other products that came along in the interim that um, clinicians were able to use in lieu of these other products. So why are we now using these products again? Well, there's been a lot of development on the uh, industrial side which have allowed uh, better preservation so that these can, can be cryopreserved or dehydrated and they have shelf lives of two or three years. And so that 
that's a real game changer for a wound clinic who could now stock these on the shelf and use them when a patient comes in and not have to use them within 24 hours of, of the birth of the child or worry about uh, bacterial contamination. The screening mechanisms, as they have for all donor tissues, have been uh, well worked out. And so we have a much better way of screening those. Um, these, these are... Uh, voluntarily donated tissues. We know with blood transfusions, uh, they, they provide less risk of disease transmission. And uh, there's this FDA pathway that I mentioned, which allows these to be introduced with the market without a lot of uh, clinical studies. So there are probably um, 14 or 15 or, or perhaps even more of these placental-based products that are available in the U.S., and I've just listed some of these, which uh, some of you may have uh, worked with, and um, the, these are some of them that I that I went in my review of my literature had some of the better studies demonstrating their efficacy. So I'll spend the last few minutes just going through some of the better studies on these, pointing out uh, some of the advantages of the studies, but also some of the drawbacks of the studies, and, and any randomized clinical trial has some drawbacks. So the first one uh, I'm going to talk about is this uh, one where Barry Rosenblum was a senior author, a prospective randomized multicenter controlled evaluation of the use of dehydrated amniotic membrane allograft compared to standard of care for the closure of chronic diabetic foot ulcers. In this study, they they did 15 of the DAMA compared to 14 of the standard of care. Their primary endpoint was at six weeks, and they had uh, 33 of these healed at six weeks with uh, zero of the standard of care healed. And uh, this was published in, in Wounds in, 19, six, in 2016. Here, if you look at the ulcer uh, area reduction rate, you can see Really, within the first week, there was a dramatic change in the ulcer area reduction, with uh, many of these uh, wounds being being healed by the six-week time period um, compared to the control. It's interesting that the control seemed to heal a little bit, and then they actually got bigger. So um, this study is good because of the big difference between the two, but it also has some weaknesses as the numbers are relatively small. And um, the fact that none of the controls healed um, is is an interesting thing. And then uh, to have such a high healing rate, um, which you'll see in the bigger studies, it's hard to get healing rates that are this high. So we'll go on to the next study here. This one is uh, a, a prospective randomized control multi-centered uh, comparative effectiveness study healing using dehydrated human amnion chorionic membrane allograft compared to bioengineered skin substitute or standard of care for treatment of chronic lower extremity diabetics. And so this was a three-arm study uh, comparing the placental allografts with the um, bioengineered skin compared with the control group. And he, the, Charles Zellin was the uh, first author on this. And you can see the differences in healing rate. It's interesting that the apograft uh, looks pretty good at the beginning and 
and uh, heals a lot of wounds, but um, then does not uh, do as well at the end. The uh, placental membranes did very well in this study, and uh, the controls did the did the worst. So this study uh, was good because it had two comparative groups, and it uh, really showed that these placental membranes in this study uh, performed better than either of the control groups. Uh, the problem of the study is it's still a relatively small study, and there. And the fact that uh, they had such high uh, healing rates in the patient in their placental group um, makes one wonder: did they did they have any uh, tough? Did they end up with any tough wounds in that group? But uh, still, it's randomized controlled study and uh, very helpful to look at. Then there's another. Um, human amniotic chorionic membrane, a, a different manufacturer um, done by Larry DiDomenico in the International Journal of Wounds. And uh, again, this shows the difference between the amnion and the chorion and how those are uh, put together. And in this case, these are aseptically processed without terminal sterilization, uh, which has a theoretical advantage. And these are... Um, the healing curves for for this again a bigger study 40 in each group you know showing over 80% healing in the intervention group compared to uh, a little over 30% in the control group they went on and extended this uh, study and added 40 more patients in each group and uh, basically to make this a larger study to get uh, to get to the higher uh, grade of evidence, and um, this showed similar um, similar trends. This is a uh, human viable wound matrix versus standard wound, standard wound care. Uh, this is cryopreserved and using diabetic foot. Uh, Larry Lavery was the uh, first author on this paper. Uh, this was a very well done uh, study with with uh, 50 in the intervention group compared to 47 in the control. And you can see um, in this study, you know, they had over 60% versus, um, versus about 25% over 12 weeks. So um, unfortunately, it's impossible to compare uh, one study with, with the next uh, because Usually the inclusion and exclusion criteria are different. Some of the studies go out to six weeks, some of them go out to 12 weeks, and uh, the size of the wounds can be different between the two studies. But these um, studies all in aggregate show um, a positive effect of these, of these um, constructs. So in, in conclusion, these placental base allografts really have a potentially large impact on a wide array of medical problems. They've been most extensively studied in wounds, and we're just starting to get out some of these uh, better randomized control clinical trials, which give us more confidence that these constructs work. Um, the best evidence to, to date is for Wagner grade one diabetic foot wounds, and those are what are generally done in the in the clinical trials. 
Um, in our clinical practice, we'll see people that have deeper wounds or that have non-diabetic wounds. And so we as clinicians need to decide, you know, can we extrapolate these data, which we've reviewed today, and can we extrapolate that to other types of wounds or patients that might have been excluded in the clinical trials, and is it worth uh, trying these products on them? And that's an individual decision that we, we need to make. Uh, we do, this is early on, so we actually have a limited number of well-designed clinical trials for efficacy. Uh, that is in the setting of really a very large number of clinical uh, products which are approved for use in the United States. Um, as many of you know, reimbursement can be a challenge. Uh, these products are expensive to manufacture to do all the screening uh, and the quality control, and so uh, reimbursement can be challenging. One of the things that uh, many of the manufacturers have done is to make these in different sizes and sizes common to foot ulcers that we typically see in our practices so we don't waste as much and that can uh, drive down the cost. We also, even if these work, we need to weigh this against other alternatives that we have available today or that may be available in the future. And um, there's likely additional regulation coming as more and more of these products uh, are coming to market and and both uh, we as clinicians and the governmental agencies see the need to uh, further regulate so that we can have uh, better studies to support our usage. So I would like to uh, thank you for your attention tonight, and um, we'll end it at this point. Thank you.